So last week, at 11 o'clock, I got to do the best part of my job. I got to bless babies. One of them is here right now, actually, little Solomon. Wave, Solomon. <laughs> he can't wave. He's a newborn. Yeah. Uh, I, I said, actually, to Reverend Ken after the service, you know, uh, just as Frank mentioned, uh, things are changing at Wellsprings. We're growing, and this summer we're transitioning to a new model away from a lead minister, an assistant minister, but to a co-ministry, and a lot of other changes in our organization that will open up opportunities for shared ministry for all of us as well. And so we're writing new job descriptions, and I said after the service to Ken, can I just do budgets and babies? I don't know why. Those are the things... I would be so happy if that's all I did. It's a weird combo, but it works for me. It was so much fun last week to be able to introduce those children to all of you. And it was also the first time I did a child dedication here at Wellsprings. So I wanted to say something. I wanted to add something to the ritual that we do here. And as I sat down to think about this, to really dig into what is it that I have to add to this gorgeous ritual that we already do of blessing our children and recognizing their beauty and their worth. And it came to me actually fairly quickly. Once I dug beneath that natural stuff, right, that, aww, ooh, the warm fuzzies that we all get with babies and kids, I realized that what draws that tenderness out in us, what pulls on the threads of those affection that draws us into those little kids' lives, it's the core of our universalist faith. It's what Reverend Ken, our lead minister, has put so eloquently, that there exists a love that's so special we don't have to be special to be loved. Because babies are beautiful and soft, squishy, adorable little lumps of fat. And that's all they are, right? They're not actually that special. They haven't done anything to earn their keep in this world, right? They pretty much, what, poop, sleep, and eat. Is that that about right, Charles and Yoko? And make noise at night when you're trying to sleep. They have not said any wise words. They have not made any great art. They're not earning any money for the household. They're draining a lot more money than they're, than they're providing. And yet somehow we instinctually feel this care and this affection and this tenderness for them. That to me is the best evidence of our faith. That there is something present at our birth before we have earned a single way or day or cent in our world that calls out from the rest of us, love this being. Take care of it. Show it tenderness and affection and kindness and gentle care and support as it grows. The reason I was really floating all last week, though, had to do with that cute little lump of fat, but also with the realization that we were all once cute little lumps of fat. They're us, and we're them. This is me at age three. It's my third birthday. I, I still make that face if you put three cupcakes in front of me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Do you know who this is? 
Any guesses? It's Reverend Ken. It's Reverend Ken being held up in the air by his mother. This right here, this next little girl, that's Ken's wife. That's Teresa. We know Teresa, right? We know her as an adult who stands up here and sings on Sunday morning. She's not here today, but she did give me permission, by the way. Everyone gave me permission to show these photos. And that's her. That's not somebody different than her. That's her. Who's, who's next up here? Oh, it's the little girl in the middle. Who does that look like? It does look like Becky. Because it is Becky. That is our youth spirit director, who I think is off with our children right now. She herself was once one of those little kids who could have run into the back of the room to go off to their time of fellowship together. I love this next one because he's wearing kind of the same outfit today. It's Frank. (laughs) Always a sport coat, Frank. Always a sport coat. (laughs) The next guy has um, a really important position on our board of trustees and a little bit less hair nowadays. It's John. That's John Jacobs, who's in our tech booth in the back. And who is after John? Oh, right, one of our spring singers. Very expressive. Julie. That one right there, yeah. Can you make the... the, I see. I see the resemblance. Uh, This is a very early version in the next one of the bass face that you all know. He's so squishy. (laughs) That's Rodney. And uh, the last one, uh, I'll I'll give you a hint. He's also wearing the same hat today. (laughs) Yep. They're cute kids, right? I did have a little bit of a fantasy, actually, as I thought about this this morning, that we could create like a Muppet Baby-style show where we all run the church. (laughs) Maybe that's just me. We are those kids. They're us, and we're them. And we see it in infancy, but as we grow, we forget that original belovedness sometimes. So much happens. So much changes in our lives. This message series, May You Be Well, that Ken and I are preaching this spring, it's about self-care, yes. But you can read a billion articles online about self-care. You can read all about how to schedule it into your day and what kinds of activities you can do, how to find the right spa just for you, right, to take that time for yourself. But I'm not sure that we'll ever actually engage in regular practices of self-care unless we have a way to remember that we are so worth and worthy of being cared about. And remembering that original belovedness and tenderness and soft and squishiness of our lives is a big part of that. There is so much that happens in between those baby moments in our lives. We're not perfect. Belovedness and blessedness at our beginnings is not the same as perfection. We all have our first temper tantrum, We all have our first obnoxious moment as a teenager. None of you, I'm sure, right? Those sarcastic comments. We all have our first moment that we were not nice to someone, that we acted like a bully, that we told a self-serving lie, 
that we did something very adult, maybe, took our first drink, our first toke, that we betrayed someone that we loved. All of these things, if we don't remember, if we don't have a practice of remembering our original beautiful belovedness, they chip away at our sense of perfection and we can begin to believe that maybe we don't deserve the tenderness of the love. And maybe it's not about self-hatred or self-loathing like Reverend Ken said last week. Maybe sometimes it's just about self-neglect. It's a different way of feeling like we don't deserve it, right? It's a, it's a way of feeling like there are other things that are more important. My work is more important. My kids are more important. My marriage is more important. My friends are more important. Those things are important, but so are you. So are we. Because we all were those babies once. There's a quote from the Christian scriptures that gets taken out of context a lot. It's right here. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man or an adult, I put away childish things. Oh, good for you, right? (laughs) I put away childish things. When we grow up, we need to be serious. We need to be self-sufficient. We need to be able to handle ourselves, right? That quote out of context throws the baby out with the bathwater, forgive my bad pun. It says, right, by itself, it can be used to imply that now that we are grown, once we become grown-ups, we leave behind everything from our childhood. We leave behind the idea that we are vulnerable, that we need nurturance. Our need for nurturance never goes away. If you keep reading in that passage, you'll actually see that Paul, the author of that scripture, says growing up actually means realizing just how dependent we are on each other. We can't ever know the whole of things on our own. We can only know in part each of us carries a piece. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known, relationship. So much relationship and connection there. And of course, the last line of that famous scripture, now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Our original belovedness, the love that we already were when we came into this world. That's the truth that we can all always return to. And self-care can look like a lot of things, but ultimately it's a practice of reminding ourselves of that love. I went to D.C. this week. Uh, Most of you know that I serve Wellsprings part-time, and I have another part-time job as an admissions counselor at Swarthmore College. I've often commented on the irony of this. In in this role, I talk about our uh, original belovedness and the wide doors of universalism and how everyone's welcome. (laughs) And in my other job, I'm literally deciding, you're good enough, you're not good enough. (laughs) It's been a weird three years, I'm not going to lie. Swarthmore College, where I work, is a very selective school, and 
has a Quaker history. And so I was invited last week to present on a panel in D.C. at Sidwell Friends School, which is a very elite, selective, expensive, excellent, private Quaker school, high school, in Washington, D.C. You may know it by uh, a family, the um, Obamas, their children go there. It's easily, you know, certainly one of the best schools in the United States, if not in the entire world. I was on this panel with a representative from Rice and another representative from University of Michigan. And we spent about an hour and a half with a room of 100, 120 parents, parents of high schoolers between freshman year and junior year of high school, just answering their questions. They had a lot of questions. What classes should my child be taking to best position them for acceptance into your school? What should they be doing over the summer? How can they build the best, strongest resume that will get them in to all of these selective schools? And I didn't say this out loud, because I need to keep my job for another couple months. (laughs) But in the back of my head, I, I was struck by the realization that all I felt I was doing was finding new and creative ways to say, relax, y'all. Your child goes to Sidwell Friends School. They're going to be fine. There are children out here whose parents never went to college who can't help them navigate that process at all. There are children whose teachers don't have the books to teach from, who don't get paid enough for the work that they have to do. Your children... We've been talking about remembering the original blessing of our birth. Your children are very, very, very blessed. And I promise you they're going to be okay. But of course I didn't say that, not just because I want to keep my job, but because it doesn't matter to them in the moment. They love their child. They're worried about their child. And so they fall into this trap that I think we all fall into. They forget what it means to return to that original belovedness and instead get caught up in the world. The world that encourages us to see ourselves sometimes as parts in a system, as functions in a machine, as steps toward a goal or an outcome, as things. Complete step A in high school, get into college B. Graduate from college B, get professional track C, which will take you to income level D, or whatever it is in your life or in their lives. I don't blame them, but I could see so clearly how the context and the world around them had shaped their perspective and made it so easy to forget what's really at the core of their love for their children. I have a good friend named Mark, and Mark and I became friends at the the All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. about 10 years ago. Ten years ago, our church organized a trip to go down to New Orleans just about eight months after Hurricane Katrina hit in August of 2005, and they needed a lot of help down there. So they were putting volunteer teams on a lot of pretty intense projects. Mark ended up in a group of about a dozen people who were assigned to demolish a home. They were tearing it down to the studs, 
so that someone could rebuild. When Mark got down there, he walked into a house that had not been touched since the previous August. Eight or nine months, the flood damage, the mold, everything in that house was soft and squishy and not in a good way. He had some kind of off-brand hazmat suit on, and they handed him a sledgehammer and a crowbar. And they said, pull down everything but the studs. Pull down the cabinets, pull out the carpet, pull up the floors, break through those walls with your sledgehammer, create a hole and then yank the drywall out and then yank all of the insulation out. He said after a couple hours, once they had gotten most things out of the way, they were walking around this house, this precious home that someone had lived in. They had done their best to stack the photo albums they'd found, the blankets, the remnants of things that honestly probably no one would want because they were so damaged, but that showed that people had lived here. And at a certain point, they were just walking around looking for those last little tufts of insulation that were stuck in the ceiling, those little corners that were jutting out that had been hard to wrench off of the wall. And he said, you know, it was awful and it was sad and I was happy to do what I could to help. But the weirdest thing actually about that experience had nothing to do with what happened in that house. It was when I went back to my hotel room that night. And I noticed that the cabinet door was a little bit ajar. And my first instinct was not to shut it. It was to grab it and yank it down. (laughs) I had been retrained in such a short amount of time to see something precious and beloved as an obstacle, as something that was just functional in my way to getting a job done. He said it took me a couple hours, actually, of walking around the world and learning to kind of re-see things because I'd spent so much time practicing something different, practicing saying that wall should not be there, which is so different than how we see our world most of the time. It's frighteningly easy for us to be taught by our environment to see something precious as something functional. It's terrifyingly easy to treat human beings as tools to get what we want, as things that stand in our way, as objects for someone else to use or exploit. Our bodies are not objects, they're living, they're moving. They're expressions of love. We see that in those new babies that when they first come into the world, pull on our hearts and tell us they are inherently worthy of care. Our hearts have to beat for us to live. They have to move. Our lungs have to expand and contract. Our bodies are the form that give our souls a place to call home when we're born. You could argue that they are literally what give our lives meaning. And yet when you look up self-care 
on the Internet, <laughs> you find so many articles that even talk about perverting this idea of self-care to make us more efficient, right? As self-care is a way to get our work done faster or better. That's not the point. I read one article this week on Lifehacker that said it's important that we do our uh, emotional hygiene care, right? The kind of stuff Frank was talking about, that we sit, that we pay attention to our emotions. And they said it's important that we do this so that we can control our emotions and get back to work. No. That's the world talking. That's not that deeper inner truth talking. And we can engage in lots of different practices for self-care. And yes, that might help us reach our true goals in our lives. And that can be a beautiful fruit of those practices. But it is not a sustaining reason for us to engage them. Self-care is resistance. It's resistance to a world that wants to treat our bodies as things and to a world that wants to treat our time here on earth as a commodity. Time is money. Self-care is living our faith every day. Now, it may look like a spa day for you. Today, for me, it's going to look like going outside and enjoying the rest of this day, right? I don't know what it looks like. But ultimately, it's much richer and more countercultural than what the magazines might tell you it is. It's setting a realistic sense of our expectations for ourselves. It's telling our bosses or whoever we're accountable to at work, no, sometimes. I can't do that. How can we find another way? I don't have the time or the energy. Let's talk this through. If you're a boss, it may be hearing that. It may be really restructuring some aspect of our lives or shifting something in our relationships so that we can break out of some of these patterns we fall into. People-pleasing, prestige-chasing, or even just that inner sense that gnaws at us that we need to do something to prove ourselves to this world. Self-care can help us reconnect instead with that deeper truth that we've proven everything we need to prove. Even before we can wave our arm, we are already loved. Kind of a huge deal. Which brings me to my last point. Who do you think this little guy is up here? No cheating first service people. It is Donald Trump. Yes. He's cute, huh? Just so no one can say we didn't give equal time, you might recognize this young lady. They were born in original belovedness. And I think the system they're caught up in, that they're both caught up in, no matter who you support, no matter what you believe about politics, shows the dangers of chasing after whatever this world wants rather than engaging in those practices that remind us that we are beloved and so is everyone else. And when we forget that, we can do harm to ourselves and to each other. We can 
learn too easily to treat each other in this world as less than human. None of what I say is ever true because I say it because I'm in front and have the microphone. We make these things real when we live them with each other and for each other. So I want to close today with a little bit of creative interruption of the kind that we've been doing in this self-care message series. I want everyone to face someone who's near them. Come on, face somebody who's near you. It can be someone you know. Make sure you're looking at them. Make sure everybody kind of has somebody in there. It could be a group of two or three, that's fine. We're going to say that same child dedication blessing that you said to Solomon and Demetrius last week. Repeat after me. Friend, you are beloved. We commit to do all we can to help you grow. Clear and true to who you already are. And to remember always that you are loved. Amen. And may you live in blessing. (laughs) You can stop repeating now. (laughs) Will you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit of laughter, of the love that animates each of our lives, that encourages us to smile with each other, to play, to enjoy the sunshine. We come together every week in part to be reminded of this truth, that there is a love out there that loves us dearly no matter what we do, that has been with us since we were born, that we sometimes can't see, but that we have faith in. And when we lose our faith, we come together to be reminded by each other that there are other people out here who can hold this truth for us. And so in gratitude for all of the beautiful people who've joined us this morning, for these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that they each carry on their hearts, we say amen.